0: Hi, Pastor Adam here. This month we are looking at relationships, covenantal relationships versus transactional relationships, how God sets up relationships versus how man sets up relationships. This week we're starting out by just looking at the history of how God sets up covenantal relationships with his people. If that sounds like something you might be interested in, then this is the sermon for you. As I said just now, we're coming into the sort of home stretch of our year. Um, this year in 2022, where we've been focusing on what it means to be vigilant in our solidarity as a body of believers. Vigilant together so that we can stay united as a Aletheia Bible Fellowship. We've covered a lot of grounds and we've covered a lot of angles throughout the year. Um, as a quick just sort of rundown and recap, we've talked about how we're supposed to conflict in a biblical and godly way, how we should approach forgiveness in order to maintain unity in the body and solidarity. Uh, we talked about where we draw our identity ultimately from. We've talked a lot about family dynamics from just top to bottom and what that looks like and how we should understand our roles in the family. We've talked about loyalty and, and friendship. And then lastly, uh, last month, we, what it means to interact and be in the world, but not of the world. Um, Being in the world while remaining set apart, while remaining holy. So um, that's the ground we've covered this month, and we enter in this final month continuing our conversation on just relationships, how we can better relate and come before each other. And it's specifically, and on the heels of last month, um, how we relate on a covenantal basis versus a transactional one. Transactional being what we see in the world around us, covenantal being how we see God interacting with us and how we are called to interact with one another because of that. So we're gonna be talking about that this month, um, what it means to have covenantal versus transactional or contractual relationships, um, yeah, together as a body. So. If we have any expectation hope of remaining in that solidarity that we've been talking about and staying vigilant in that unity um, amongst each other and keeping it intact, then we need to be careful not to adopt the world's way of coming before one another in relationship. One where, as we've talked about, I think James alluded or talked about it at least once, once last month or mentioned it, I think Colin did as well, one where we're quick to dispose of each other at the drop of a hat when the relationship no longer suits us, no longer fulfills our own personal desires, um, our own personal wants or needs, uh, one where we no longer have a use for that relationship, so we abandon it altogether, one where when common uh, interests fade with each other, then, well, there can't be a relationship anymore. We're here to combat that with what we see in Scripture. And we throw around this term social contract a lot up here and around here. And it's because uh, though the Western world in particularly pretends to base human interaction and civility on a higher standard, at best, it's one that has adopted Christian ethics and values for doing something, but removing completely God from that equation of relationship. And leaving it baseless, leaving it without a proper foundation, leaving it short-sighted in relationship. We've talked a little bit about that in our cell groups, I know. But it's a, it's a way of interacting and being in relationship with one another that is it's selfish, and it doesn't honor the God we're supposed to be honoring. It doesn't testify to the God we're supposed to be living our lives and modeling our lives after. And so this month we're going to hopefully... Um, you know, reflect. Reflect on where we each are individually and where we are as a body in terms of am I coming before relationships with some sort of seed of, you know, social contract theory of scratching my back and I'll scratch yours until it doesn't suit us and then, you know, we go our separate ways. And it's okay because that's what the world teaches. In chapter 7 of Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, I know there's a couple of the guys reading that book right now. If you're John, you've been reading that book for like three years or something. But in chapter 7 of Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, she critiques the leading thinkers of today who seek to demolish the biblical approach to relationships and instead think of each other as merely contracts. And she says this, What exactly is a contract? It's a limited exchange of goods and services. Its defining feature is that in a contract, we define the relationship. We choose the terms, we choose the conditions under which we stay or leave, and so on. It's based on ourselves, what we want, what we desire, what we are willing to do. The standard or the terms and conditions, sorry, are not set or preset by God or moral law or human nature. The standard isn't set by any sort of higher authority in the world's way of relationship, but merely our own. And she says, if the agreement no longer yields the desired benefits, it can be terminated. A relationship can be terminated, and it's as simple as that. A contract is a deal we strike with others, which we can make or break at our will, whenever we want, with zero regard for what, that, what the fallout of that is. With zero regard for the relationship with the person you were with. And she goes on to say that the idea resonates because many practical matters of life are, in fact, contracts. You know, we have our different loans, if we have a car or a house and different things like that, even our employment is a type of contract, we have our cell phone plans, all these different things which are like literally contracts by, you know, standard definition. And so she says it's psychologically easy to then apply that to every other aspect of living. And that's what we've done, that's what we've done as a society, and that's what we struggle against even in the church is viewing relationships in that way. We've dehumanized one another to the point of seeing each other as nothing more than something cold and calculated rather than truly relational. And she says, but the Bible presents our relationships as something different, as covenants. And a covenant, she says, we don't agree to perform a service, but acquire a status a child of God, a husband or wife, a brother or sister, a mother or father. We don't agree to provide a product for someone else but instead we pledge our very selves. The whole person commitment is what we lose when we redefine all relationships as contracts. Our relationships become thin, fragile, self-interested only and easily discarded so we're going to try and dive into that over the, the next four weeks and today is you know, setting a sort of basis and foundation of what we see in scripture in terms of covenants um, and we're going to allow that to be a springboard into the next three weeks after that um, and how we can better understand how it is that we're supposed to remain in solidarity by how it is that we rethink the way that we approach relationships so here we go. I debated myself on how much um, historical background I wanted to try to present to you guys regarding uh, this sort of rampant adoption of social contract theory because truth be told it 's one that like spans over the last four hundred years and has infiltrated different aspects of society and civility um, and there's you know there's several grandfathers of this of this philosophy, of this way of living and relating and, and being in relationship with each other. So um, I'm not going to go too crazy in fear of losing you guys because it's, you know, it's kind of a lot, and in fear of losing myself and where I wanted to go with this. But the long and short of it is there's these four guys, Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, and Rutherford, who are the grandfathers of this, of this social contract theory. And what it is, what they are talking about was involved in everything from politics to economics to um, relationships to social justice and so on. Uh, to put a quick bow on these guys, and I would encourage you guys to do your own you know, research, it's, it's an interesting study of what these guys posited and how it's influenced and how you can clearly see their influence today. But to put a quick bow on these guys, the very very possibility of their contract theory, I would suggest, relies distinctly on theological virtues while removing God from it. One commenter argues that modern social contracts are living off the borrowed capital of Judeo-Christian ideas of trust, of oath-keeping, of moral accountability and power beyond the state without which they cannot survive. And another similarly states that modern contract law comes from medieval canon law and relies on concepts of sin and equity and the idea that making a promise incurs an obligation to God. As I said, at best, these are Secular contract theories that were brought forward as a way in which we can achieve a high civil standard with each other without acknowledging the biblical back and God that they are based on. Samuel Rutherford, this guy I mentioned, one of the guys I mentioned, he attempted to bridge back the gap, to reintroduce God. He specifically cites the Moses narrative as the way back together and how we should interact and relate the deliverance of the people by a sovereign being, an elected leader who would be accountable to the sovereign God. And in a way, he tried to reintroduce theocracy. But I'll stop that short. You guys can continue to read or study those if you so wish. It's interesting if you're, like I said, interested in knowing where, why we are at where we are at today in terms of how society interacts with one another especially how it influences ideas of social justice and things of that nature. But it's 400 years of influence. They've had time. Society has had time to adopt it slowly, to integrate it, to teach it to our kids, and I'd venture to guess that almost all of us deal with it on some level in terms of approaching relationships on a contractual basis, and thinking in that way, rather than thinking how our God thinks about relationships. And so we're going we're gonna to transition into sort of a case study in that right now. Biblical Christianity offers the resource out of the toxic idea and selfish way of relationship. Relationships of care, of dependency, of love and mutuality, which we all readily recognize in daily life, and find, these things find their home in the Christian account, but they risk becoming invisible if we don't combat the contractual narrative that we see today. The word and focus of this month, maybe one you can seek to memorize, is covenant and the idea of what it means. In Hebrew, it's berith; In Greek, it's diatheke. And there's significance to this word in terms of how we understand our relationship with God and how we're to better understand how we are to be in relationship with one another. The word is used a couple hundred times more even in Scripture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it suggests that when God creates a covenant with his people, with us, he's creating an alliance. This is what it means to covenant, to form an alliance, to pledge yourself. He's declaring himself to his people that the God of the universe is on their side, is on our side. That's what it means to covenant. This is really dumb, but last night I was mulling this over. This idea of, you know, God... Pledging himself, being an alliance, coming alongside us. I was thinking about that scene in Avengers Endgame. Y'all seen Avengers Endgame? Spoiler alert in three, two, one. So there's that scene, it's an epic scene at the end of the movie when they're facing the insurmountable Thanos, right? It's the endgame now. And Cap, a couple other guys, they're getting beat up hard. And they're about to go down trying, but they're getting beat up. And all of a sudden, in the calms, what do we hear? In Cap's ear. Yes, Aiden. Resident Marvel nerd. On your left. And we're like, what? What was that? And then there's this epic scene where it spans out, right, excuse me, where it spans out, spans across the battlefield, and you see coming through all these Doctor Strange portal things, every Marvel hero for like the last 100 years of Marvel movies. And it's like the culmination of it all, right? It's epic, and it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. And when it plays, we're all sitting in the theater with a dumb smile on our face because of how epic it is. That's God. God's on our left. That's the term bereath that we find in the Old Testament scriptures, that he sets himself on the side of his people. He pledges himself to them, not because they asked for it, not because of anything they did, but because he wanted to. And he asks that we do the same. The truth behind covenant is, is that it is thicker, more multifaceted, a more multifaceted concept than the legal notion of a contract. And it offers a productive and important counterpoint to modern day ideas of contract-based relationship. And so we're going to look at five covenants that we see in scripture Y'all should be familiar with them. They serve as sort of the basis for much of what we believe. They paint the narrative of Scripture toward Christ. They point the narrative of Scripture toward Christ, sorry. We should all be familiar with them. If you don't already know them, consider this your short case study. We have, first, the Noahic Covenant. Y'all heard of that? Yes, some nods. In short, it's the pledge that God makes that includes all of his creation. The parameters for what will happen moving forward post-flood. Post-world devolved in wickedness and hate of God. His responsibility and pledge to Noah and all of creation, as well as their responsibility as a response to this grace gracious act. And we read this in Genesis chapter 9. (coughs) Excuse me. Then God blessed Noah, starting at verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require a blood of anyone who takes another person's life. And if a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes life, that person's life will be taken. For God made human beings in his image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. And God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will I do what I did, he says. Never again will I fill floodwaters and kill everything, kill all living creatures. Never again will will a flood destroy the earth. And then God said, I'm giving you a sign. And that sign isn't what we see it accosted as today. (coughs) I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It's the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. That when I send the clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear. And I will remember my covenant with you and all living creatures. Never again will floodwaters destroy the earth. God felt forced to act because of how creation devolved into wickedness of every kind. And he did it. And he sent a flood. But what happens after that is he says to himself, That's not the answer for my people. I'm never going to do that again. He was justified in doing it. But that's not what he wants for his people, his creation, to be destroyed. And so he makes a covenant with Noah. We have the Abrahamic covenant, perhaps the one that we think of first, before his commitment to Noah. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15 subverts the paradigm of reciprocal commitments by the manner in which it's set up by God to Abram, to Abraham. It says this in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision, and said to him, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'll protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O oh, sovereign Lord, what good will all your blessings what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And then the Lord said to him, No, your servant won't be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And verse 6 says, This is an important verse to memorize. Verse 6 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. And the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Verse 17 says, After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between two halves of a carcass. And so the Lord made a covenant with him on that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates River the land now occupied by all the different ites. All the different ites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all these different tribes. Far from being an active participant in the covenant, Abram is out. He's sleeping. And far from being distant or merely ethereal, Scripture says that the Lord himself is, walks between the animals in the shape of a fire. And that will later, he will later lead the Israelites through the wilderness. And the asymmetry between Abram and God ruptures the requirement of participation and reciprocity that governs man's idea of relationship. Man's idea and man's social contracts. Abram makes no promises in return but instead just believed. Romans 4, 1-3 says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation, and what did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God, and he was counted as righteous because of his faith. When we, the elders <coughs> excuse me, tell you that social contracts are a broken method for relationships and all kinds of civility, we're partly alluding to the fact that this standard relies on mutual reciprocity, and if it is unbalanced, then the parties are free to abandon the relationship, the relational burden. While reciprocity we've talked about that even in, earlier in the year while it should be present. God doesn't set that as a defining measure for relationship, and we see this in the Abrahamic covenant. And if Genesis 15 were a social contract, it would be broken before it begins. Such is the imbalance of commitment on Abraham's part and responsibility on his part. I mentioned a minute ago that one distinctive feature of covenant over any sort of transactional relationship is that it's defined in large part by grace. A contract is governed by calculation and mutual benefit and can be broken if the conditions aren't met. And it's right to do so if they're not met. If the conditions are adverse or if another party reneges on his commitment. A biblical covenant... A covenantal way of relationship, by contrast, is irrevocably binding and doesn't play out on a balance sheet of credit and debt. It hangs on the character of a God who doesn't exploit his position of power but moves toward his people of his own free will, of his own grace, even laying down his life to serve those people. Covenants, as God shows us, are a matter built on personal integrity. God does what he says he will do. He doesn't do what he says he won't do, in the case of the Noahic covenant. He's consistently himself for us in relationship when he decides, by his grace, to align or to pledge himself to us. Our efforts and integrity in relationships should be characterized by the same God whose image we're created in. Are they? The Mosaic Covenant, perhaps the closest that the Bible gets to any sort of explicit social contract, is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And Joshua's subsequent instruction to the nation in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, to choose whom they will serve. It's that, as for me in my house passage. It's telling that this agreement between God and his people does not bring about the society it regulates, but acknowledges the gracious act of ownership and rescue that he, that God, had already performed. And it's made clear in the first verses of Exodus chapter 20, a chapter containing the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You must ha- not have any other God but me. The Lord's deliverance of his people, of the Israelite people, is predicated on his own character, that of a gracious, gracious, and loving God who was pledged to them, not some transaction or understanding beforehand. God didn't decide to deliver them from the Egyptian oppression because they had triggered some clause in the relationship and were do something. He did it because he was theirs and he made that commitment of himself because he loved and he wanted them. The law he gives to Moses to to deliver to the people is him formally declaring the relationship that was already committed to previously. A relationship that he had already promised whether or not they would even follow the law. Whether or not they would even follow the law that he just gave them, he was still committed to them. Think about that in terms of your own relationships. Whether or not someone does right by me, I'm still committed to them. That's a hard one for us, because when we feel wronged, we flare up. We get mad. We want justice. Whether or not they would follow the law that he just gave them, he formally declared what he had already committed to. In essence, he's saying, this is what I'm going to be, to be for you. Here's this law that will help you be in alliance with me too. But regardless of you even following this thing, I'm still yours. Forever, and this is my oath as God to you. To be in covenantal relationship is to make a personal oath to someone because of the righteous and godly character that we see before us, that we see example to us, not because of anything we'll get in return. This Mosaic covenant wasn't performative, as I said but descriptive of the reality of the rescue for relationship in which the nation found itself in. God pulled them out so that he and they could be in an unobstructed, unhindered relationship. And in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, it says that God told Moses to announce to him, to Pharaoh, announce to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. This particular covenant has another distinction in that it wasn't a one time event. It wasn't deliverance out of Egypt, and that was it. (coughs) One commentator says the Lord didn't covenant with Moses and Israel as a one time event, the agreement then fading into the background of history like some ceremonial contract signing. I can feel my voice going as I'm up here. Can you hear it? No, I'm not too far away from the end. <laughs> Thanks. Like some ceremonial contract signing, he gives Israel a litany of institutional, monarch- monarchical, familial, and personal habits and ceremonies with the intention of predisposing his people to remember and keep the covenant. Among The many things he gave and ordains are the injunction to remember the Passover and teach its significance to the children. Not as an afterthought, but as a command on the very night of Passover itself. See, the injunction to teach new kings to read through the Torah and make for themselves their own copies the inscription of Exodus into memory, into the cultural and agricultural rhythms of the nation that we see in Leviticus chapter 25, you know, those real boring chapters of the Bible. The celebration and remembrance of God's salvation, act and the giving of the law in song, that we see in Exodus 15, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, in Psalm 77: 78. 105, 107, 119. The remembrance of what he did for them. These different cultural and ritual practices engage the people's senses, emotions, and minds in remembering and reinforcing the covenant that they received from him. And at every level of society, from the individual into the household. The value of and expectation of trustworthiness of civility and obedience to divine promises are all hardwired into Israel's corporate life because of what he gave them and it's no accident that these are among the qualities necessary for a strong and sustainable covenant community a church we see as an example of covenantal relationships, a God who sets his people in a thoroughly sets up his people in a thoroughly holistic manner, in which they can better thrive in their daily, weekly, yearly lives, together and with him. As we examine the world around us and even some of those relationships that we might find ourselves in, ones defined by contract rather than covenantally minded? Can we say that they are set up in the same holistic manner? Or does the culture's idea of social contract fail us by not actually allowing our relationships and daily living to truly thrive or be as far-reaching as those relationships could be into our lives? A high point of God's covenant relationship with man came through his commitment with King David, the Davidic covenant. Through which he promised to rule his people forever. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. God, through the seed of David, as we see in Matthew chapter 1 right at the top, a very imperfect man, by the way, ushered in a new and final covenant by which all men can receive the free and gracious gift of relationship and reconciliation. It means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Those who partake of God's covenant relationship, us and the church are now likewise called in Christ to unite ourselves in covenant relationship with others as a local expression and testimony of the covenant that we're given by him and his redemptive work in the world. Although that the church has a propensity to stumble, to fall short of God's design for relationship, for covenant relationships between each other, we're nonetheless instructed to wholeheartedly commit ourselves together in solidarity and love for the advancement of that gospel. This is done on the basis of God's character, not on our own standard. It's done on the basis of who he is and who we're called to be when we claim him as our own, just as the Israelites did as he commanded them to. We're fortunate that we have a God who modeled real relationship for us, real love for us, graciousness and sacrifice for our benefit. A God who wants us to thrive in relationship with him and wants us to practice it with one another so we can experience a more full version of what it means to be together. To practice his own character on one another so that he is glorified in the process. We praise our God, who was willing to give himself up on the cross, shamed and broken, killed so that He can remain faithful to the oath that He pledged to us. long before we ever made the same commitment in return.